At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi, I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Portapik, Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is a Canadian province located on the country's eastern seaboard and is one of Canada's four original provinces. In comparison, the U.S. state closest in land size to Nova Scotia is West Virginia. The township of Portapique is a small rural community in Colchester County that has about 100 residents during the winter, more than doubling its size in the summer when families flock to the area to enjoy the beach. The town overlooks the river from which it gets its name that flows into Cobequid Bay, the easternmost tip of the Bay of Fundy, and is made up of a mix of cottages, trailers, and homes nestled on the shore. In 2020, this close-knit community was betrayed by one of its own when a resident went on a rampage resulting in the largest mass murder in Canadian history. The content of this podcast is based on 13 Deadly Hours by the Fifth Estate, which is a Canadian news magazine TV program on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation that aired on November 22, 2020, as well as additional news reports. We also would like to thank our listener, Heidi, who lives in Canada and suggested that we discuss this case. Heidi, thanks so much for the suggestion, and we appreciate all of our listeners who submit story ideas. On the night of Saturday, April 18th, 2020, Greg and Jamie Blair invited two of their neighbors over for dinner in the rural community of Portapique. It's at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is surprising, I think, that it's been going on so long. It mm-hmm. feels like it was a lifetime ago. Exactly. And they invited their neighbors over to dinner, so they set up a table in their garage to enjoy dinner and kept their garage door open. Hmm. Greg and Jamie ran a business together, selling and installing propane and natural gas equipment across Nova Scotia. Greg was turning 46 in just a few days, and he and his wife Jamie were finally mortgage and debt-free, which... Good for them. At 46, that's pretty awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. After their friends left around 10 p.m. that night, Jamie was in the backyard getting ready to burn some brush they'd cleared earlier in the day, and they had two young sons, aged 10 and 12, who were playing video games inside the house. Jamie heard Greg yell, what the bleep are you doing with a gun? And then they heard a shot. Greg was killed instantly, a few steps away from the front door in front of his wife. Jamie ran into the house to get her sons, and they all ran down the hallway to the boys' bedroom. Jamie called 911 at 10.01 p.m., letting the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, 
otherwise known as Mounties, know that there was a shooter in Portapic. While the two boys hid behind the bed, Jamie sat with her back against the door while she stayed on the line with 911, shielding her sons from the gunman in case he came in the house and tried to get through the door. She told the 911 dispatcher that she knew who the shooter was and identified him as a neighbor. She also told the dispatcher that there was an RCMP cruiser in front of her house. The gunman did enter the house, going down the hallway and firing his gun eight times through the bedroom door. One of the bullets went through the mattress to where the boys were hiding, missing them only by a foot. Jamie, who had been leaning against the door to try and protect the door from being opened, was hit by several of the shots and died trying to protect her sons. The gunman also shot their dog. After seeing their mother killed, the brothers crept out of their room and realized the gunman was trying to set their house on fire. The 12-year-old found logs from their wood stove strewn across their floor with the propane stove left on with hot dog and hamburger buns thrown on top near the flaming elements. The two boys ran out of their house through the woods toward their neighbors, the McCulleys, to try and get help. Next door to the Blairs, elementary school teacher Lisa McCauley was taking a walk along the shore, something that had become a nightly ritual for her. We're calling it next door, but literally this is a rural area, so there is significant space between the homes. Lisa had moved to port Peck in part because she loved being outdoors, spending her free time hiking, doing yoga, and playing with her two children. After Lisa returned home from her walk and put her son and daughter to bed that evening, she noticed something troubling and stepped outside. Through the dense spruce trees that usually block the view of anything around her property, she saw flames that were higher than the tree line engulfing the garage of her neighbor who lived across the way. Despite the distance, she could see the building's frame disintegrating. Lisa thought she saw a Royal Canadian Mounted Police officer already there, so she went to ask what was going on and whether she and her children should evacuate. Unfortunately, it was not an RCMP officer. It was the person who killed the Blairs, and Lisa was shot as she approached him and died instantly. Lisa's children remained inside their home alone, but answered the door when the two Blair boys showed up looking for help. After calling 911, the four young kids huddled together under the staircase in the basement. The Mountie dispatcher tried to keep them calm and told them to wait for someone to rescue them. The dispatcher told the kids that an officer would have a special word they would tell the children so the kids would know it was a real officer and that it was finally safe to come out. Lisa McCauley was not the only neighbor alarmed by the garage fire. At about 10.20 p.m., so 19 minutes after Jamie Blair had made the 911 call, a man named Andrew McDonald and his wife, who lived up the road, also noticed the flames. They jumped in their car and called 911 to get a closer look. As they were driving to see what was going on, he and his wife spotted a police vehicle in front of their neighbor, Frank and Don Gullinchen's house. McDonald told the dispatcher that it appeared an RCMP officer was already on scene, but said the car was empty and the roof lights were not on. The couple continued down the road toward the fire, and as they got closer, they realized the fire was not coming from the Gullinchen's home, but from their neighbor, Gabriel Wartman's garage. McDonald said his first thought was to call Gabe. He and Gabe were friendly, and they'd been neighbors for nearly a decade, and, you know, they would have a beer together now and then or talk about working on cars or motorcycles. 
But then McDonald remembered that Gabe actually did not have a cell phone. While still on the phone with the 911 operator, as they pulled up to the house, they saw that the kitchen was on fire. This is two houses, two fires. Correct. And that's something Mr. McDonald had said was that two fires and two houses that were right down the road from each other in this little tiny town. A little bit crazy. A little bit crazy. As they were driving down the road before they actually got in front of the Gillinchins' house, they noticed that someone was now in the RCMP car and they started driving toward the McDonald's. As the car pulled up beside them, McDonald rolled down his window because he wanted to make sure that the RCMP officer was aware of two things. One, that he was still on the phone with 911 at the time, mm-hmm. and they were friendly and they were there to help. That is when the man McDonald thought was an RCMP officer rolled down his own window and started firing a gun at them. They were able to quickly duck down, but one bullet grazed McDonald's forehead, causing a lot of blood, and another went through his arm. His wife, thankfully, was not hit. Kath, I read that it's pitch black, and the only reason McDonald knew that a gun was pointing at him was because he saw the laser coming from it. How crazy is that? Well, crazy, because that means if he didn't have it, he never would have known to duck. That's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So McDonald floors it, drives away, and thankfully the RCMP imposter Mm -hmm. did not follow him. As they're driving away, remember, he's still on the phone with 911. He identified the person who shot at him as the same neighbor who had been identified by Jamie Blair in the first phone call. And my understanding, Kath, is that all of this activity is happening off of Orchard Beach Road. Correct. And this is kind of a main road that goes through this small town. Okay. Now, just to recap quickly, it's 1026, 25 minutes after the first 911 call was made by Jamie Blair to report that her husband had been killed. Three houses are on fire. The Blair's house, the Gillinchins house, and Wartman's house. Three people have been killed. Greg and Jamie Blair and Lisa McCauley. And the two Blair children and the two McCauley children are hiding under the stairs in the basement waiting for a rescue. In McDonald's escape from the scene of the Gillinchin fire, he sees a Mountie and knows it's not his neighbor who had just fired a gun at him. So he stopped and immediately began telling the Mountie what had happened. And Kath, my understanding is that when he gets to this Mountie, he tells him, you know, this was my neighbor who did this and he's in an RCMP car. It was essentially a replica. It had the same colors, a badge, lights across the top, the whole nine yards. Yeah, it had all the emblems, right? Exactly. Then McDonald hears the real Mountie immediately relay the information about Wartman's RCMP car over the police radio. So two additional officers come to the scene. The first one checks out McDonald's gunshot wounds to make sure everything's okay and they weren't life-threatening, thank God. And the second officer takes him and his wife to the end of the road to wait for help. And while they're waiting, the officer is outside watching the woods to make sure nothing comes out. So McDonald says, it was dark and it was terrifying for anyone there. I cannot imagine what the first officers on scene had to walk into. Can you even imagine, Kath, being the officer or any of the officers who are the first on scene to start with? They're not really sure what they're dealing with. But now they're surrounded by all of these woods. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like downtown where there's streetlights and you have a little bit more of an ability to see people. Like you said, it's pitch black and they're protecting against the unknown. And they think somebody's out there hiding in the woods. So there's an advantage to being able to hide in the woods and ambush or whatever. 
That had to have been terrifying. Absolutely. At 1049 that night, 48 minutes after the first 911 call from Jamie Blair about an active shooter in Portapic, Nova Scotia's Emergency Health Services, EHS, dispatch, and they're the ones who provide emergency medical response when you call 911, were told by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police that the officers were overwhelmed and needed help. What a terrifying call to receive. Well, absolutely. But I also think it's probably, I know they've only come across one injured person, but they also know additional houses are on fire and they don't know what they're going to find. Exactly. A specialized emergency response team, sometimes called SWAT in the U.S., arrived from Halifax, which was about, what, like two hours away, I think? It was. Okay. So the ERT start clearing houses on Orchard Beach Road, pounding on doors and telling people to get out because it was an active shooter in the area as well as fires. And at this point, they're clearing houses, but they don't know where the shooter is. Well, and they could be hiding in one of the houses even. Yeah, you just don't know. So two hours after Jamie Blair made her initial 911 call, the emergency response team rescued her boys and the two McCauley children from the McCauley's basement. Just outside of Portapic, in their makeshift operations headquarters in a nearby fire station, the RCMP started putting the pieces together about the tragedy that was unfolding in the town. The Mounties blocked off a section of a highway they assumed the shooter would have to use to leave the area. They did not realize that Portapic had a back way out. It was a dirt road a few hundred yards from the subdivision's main entrance that locals called Blueberry Field Road that led to the highway. Now, Kath, this little town did not have its own police force. And so the Mounties were not as intimately familiar with it as the locals were. So they didn't know about this back road. Exactly. You see it everywhere where you will have sheriffs who patrol unincorporated communities. Correct. Now, unbeknownst to police, the gunmen used this back road to drive approximately 17 miles to the community of DeBert, where he spent the night in his car behind a welding shop. Now, really quickly, I did just want to say, Kath, a lot of these names of people and cities mm-hmm. were not familiar to us. Mm-hmm. So we did listen to Canadian news covering this so that we could get the pronunciations of especially the cities. Those were the ones that were a little more challenging. Right. And also the names of some of the victims and their families correct as well. Exactly. According to the RCMP, they did not have significant details in their manhunt until around 630 a.m. on Sunday, about eight and a half hours after the first victim, Greg Blair, was killed when Lisa Banfield came out of hiding. She told police she was the common-law wife of Gabriel Wartman, and Saturday night was their anniversary. Lisa Banfield told police that she and Wartman got into a fight that night, and he attacked her. In order to prevent her going to police, he restrained her by handcuffing one of her wrists to a handle inside a replica RCMP police car that he had modified to look real. She said she escaped by working her hand free and crawling through the window in the divider between the front and back seat. Once she got out of the car, she ran. She fled into the woods and hid until daybreak. She said she hid under a tree all night, too frightened to move because she knew exactly what he was capable of doing if he caught her. Banfield said Wartman was on a rampage and was responsible for the fires and deaths that happened in Portapic overnight. 
So now it is reinforced to officers that Wartman was driving a near-identical replica of an RCMP police car. Around 8 a.m., after police spoke with Lisa, an updated bulletin was sent out telling other police forces the gunman was potentially driving a fully marked RCMP vehicle and gave the number of the car on the side of the vehicle that distinguished it from others. So I find this crazy because Jamie Blair in her 911 call identified a Mountie vehicle and McDonald identified a Mountie vehicle. So why are we pretending, you know, eight hours later, it's suddenly surprising that they have this information? Well, what was divulged later was that the initial incident commander, a man named Staff Sergeant Halliday, when he got a call that there was an RCMP vehicle involved, they only knew of one Mountie who lived near the area. And he said his first thought was, oh my gosh, what happened? Did Mm -hmm. this guy go off the rails? What's going on? Right. So Halliday calls the Mountie to determine his location and found out that the Mountie was actually at his home near Portapique. But because this incident was ongoing as Halliday was talking to the Mountie, he knew that the Mountie wasn't involved in any way and therefore dismissed the claim and just assumed people had seen this car and assumed that's what it was because it was a Ford Taurus or a similar vehicle. Right. And when the RCMP sent out this internal bulletin to other police forces, they also noted that Wartman could be anywhere in the province and was arrestable for homicide. So here we are Sunday morning. People are starting to wake up and some people's phones are blowing up. They're getting text messages from friends. They're getting phone calls about police activity and port And some people scrolling through social media find information on Twitter. So at 11.32 p.m. on Saturday night, the only communication from the RCMP that goes out is a Twitter post. And so now, Sunday morning, people are retweeting it, but they're in this tiny town. Not everybody is on Twitter. You know, a lot of the areas surrounding where this happened are retirees. So, Kath, because of the age of the residents in the area, Twitter was not a highly used platform. So the tweet they sent out at 1130 the night before. Was that the first tweet? Exactly. Okay. Says, hashtag RCMPNS is responding to a firearms complaint in the hashtag Portapic area. Portapic Beach Road, Bayshore Road, and Five Houses Road. The public is asked to avoid the area and stay in their homes with doors locked at this time. So this is an hour and a half after Jamie Blair made the first call to 911. Correct. When most of the residents were sleeping. And so this gets retweeted and some people are getting it on Sunday morning. Okay. So based on this tweet, people who did actually see it, who weren't near Portapic, weren't particularly worried, but it was really devoid of the dramatic information they knew at the time. Right. Remember, Wartman spent the night in his car in DeBert. Around 6.30 a.m., so this was about the same time that police were talking to his common-law spouse, Lisa Banfield, Wartman arrived in Wentworth, which was about 25 miles north of Portapique, and went to the Hunter Road home of Sean McLeod and Alana Jenkins, who worked as managers at federal penitentiaries. Sean and Alana were father and stepmother to two adult daughters who lived elsewhere and were known in the community as being social and fun-loving and very gracious. It is not known why... But Gabriel Wartman chose their home. Highway video showed him driving to and from the house over the course of three hours, and police believe he shot and killed Sean and Alana and their two dogs as soon as he got there. Before he left, Wartman set the house on fire, and in a matter of minutes, flames engulfed a wall of windows that faced the Wallace River, 
where Sean and Alana spent their days floating. Sean's daughter Amelia said, I wouldn't be who I am without him. I grew up fishing and hunting, and he taught me everything. Also on Hunter Road, Wartman killed Tom Bagley near Sean and Alana's home. Bagley was a retired firefighter who always took walks in the morning, and his daughters believe that when he saw the McCloyd's house on fire, he actually went toward the fire to see if he could help. Surveillance videos captured Wartman's car leaving Hunter Road at 9.23 a.m. on Sunday morning. On the highway heading south from Wentworth, Wartman killed another woman, Lillian Campbell Hislop, who was out walking. So, Kath, my understanding is that he literally just drove by her and just shot her, like no seeming reason, completely random. Lillian was 65 years old, and she and her husband had just retired to Wentworth six years earlier. Hours later, the information released to the public via the RCMP's Twitter account was slightly changed. It said there was an active shooter in Portapic, and residents in that area should stay inside with the doors locked. Around 9 a.m., so 11 hours after the first call to 911 was made, the RCMP began to receive frantic calls from Wentworth, which made them realize that their suspect may not be where they thought he was. They did not think at that time that he had left Portapic. They thought that he was still hiding in the woods somewhere. Correct. Yeah. When the RCMP officers arrived on Hunter Road sometime after 10 a.m., Wartman was long gone, but unbeknownst to them, he had begun backtracking to the warehouse in DeBert where he'd spent the night. It was in DeBert that two additional victims were shot and killed. At 10 a.m. Sunday, April 19, 2020, about 12 hours after the first victims, Greg and Jamie Blair, were killed, Nick Beaton was making breakfast for his two-year-old son. His wife, Kristen, had just left for work. She was a traveling nurse for the Victorian Order of Nurses, which, of course, was an exhausting job during the pandemic, and she was especially tired because she was pregnant. After Kristen left for work, her husband, Nick, began texting her updates of what was happening in Port-a-Pic. Nick thought what was going on in Port-a-Pic was an isolated incident or perhaps a domestic dispute, and he had no reason to think that the shooter was out there targeting innocent people. Kristen was on her way to a patient's house, but she pulled over before she got there so she could have a telephone conversation with her husband, Nick. Meanwhile, Heather O'Brien, who was also a nurse who worked for the Victorian Order of Nurses, had the day off, but she was awakened by her daughter, Darcy Dobson, who told her the heartbreaking news that Darcy's husband had relatives who were shot and killed in Port-a-Pic. Turns out Darcy's husband was related to Greg and Jamie Blair, and their young sons played hockey together. Knowing that her family was shaken by the news, Heather offered to pick up coffees for her adult children. Heather was actually a mother to eight adult children Mm -hmm. and had 12 grandchildren, but they all lived in Wentworth, and where their houses were located were kind of in a loop, so that Heather could go to the coffee shop and did this relatively frequently and would pick up coffee. And because of how close they were, she could drop off coffee at everyone's house, quick hello and pat on the head for the grandchildren, and the coffees never got cold. That's so nice. Yeah. At this point, Heather's only information was that the shootings were happening only in Portapic, and the police were still there, so she did not think much of leaving her house more than 12 miles away from where the shootings were happening. So Nick and Kristen Beaton were having a phone conversation as she was pulled over the side of the road before she went to her patient's house. 
As they spoke, Nick cautioned her not to stop for anyone. By this time, the Mounties had tweeted the name and a photo of their suspect. So Nick went to Wartman's Facebook page and sent his wife Wartman's picture so she would know what he looked like and could avoid him. The photo was of a man smiling and wearing a baseball cap. It was the last text Kristen Beaton read. Wartman actually came across Kristen as she was pulled over to the side of the road. At the same time Nick was sending a picture of Wartman to his wife, Heather O'Brien was heading down the same road talking to a colleague on the way to pick up her coffees. She saw what she thought was a Royal Canadian Mounted Police car. At approximately 10 a.m., she heard gunshots. She sent a text to her kids in their family group chat, which said, RCMP, shots fired, DeBert. It was likely the gunfire that killed Kristen Beaton. Nick Beaton said that before his wife went to work early that morning, she came into the bedroom and gave him a kiss and a hug before leaving. She said, baby, you're the best. Little did he know it would be the last kiss he would ever have from her. While Heather was on the phone with her colleague, the colleague asked where she was. Heather told her the RCMP was there. At that point, Heather screamed and the line dropped. Her colleague frantically called 911. Heather's daughter Darcy said her mom probably felt safe seeing the Mounties' car, especially after hearing gunshots. It's actually speculation, Kathy, Mm -hmm. how she actually came across the car. Because as you just said, she was talking to her colleague, but they don't know if the RCMP car pulled her over. They don't know if it was parked in the middle of the road and Wartman was directing her to go to the side. There's just no way of knowing how she saw it and why she stopped. One of the saddest parts about this is that both of these women, both of these nurses knew there was an active shooter, but they weren't aware of where the shooter was located. The only information up to that point was Port-a-Pic was the dangerous spot to be. These nurses were killed within 100 yards of each other. It wasn't until after they were killed that the RCMP sent out a tweet for the first time that said that the gunman who we now know to be Gabriel Wartman, Mm -hmm. may have been driving a vehicle that looked like an official cruiser, and he may have also been wearing an official uniform. And now they knew the gunman was on the move. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Two Mounties, Chad Morrison and Heidi Stevenson, both worked out of Enfield, which was an hour's drive from Portapique. They had been called to help set up roadblocks in DeBert and agreed to meet at an intersection about 30 miles from where they were heading. Morrison pulled up to an approaching police car in Shubenacadie. Shubenacadie? That's how you pronounce it. Thinking it was Stevenson there to meet him. As the police cruiser came closer, Morrison realized a man was behind the wheel of the police car, and within seconds, the driver pulled out a gun and started firing out his window at Morrison. Morrison was shot in the arm, but managed to drive away, frantically pressing an emergency alarm in his car as he sped off. Now, Kath, what I read is that all of these cruisers had one button in the car that they could press that was supposed to then send out an alert to all of the other officers. Mm. It wasn't like here, you know, you have to call officer down, officer needs help, something like that. Right. But he said he kept pressing it and pressing it because he didn't know if anybody was getting it. Wartman sped away, not knowing, of course, if he had killed Morrison or not, but assuming he did... But in less than half a mile, he saw Heidi Stevenson's vehicle. He actually turned in to intercept her because they were coming toward each other Mm -hmm. and intentionally crashed into her, slamming their vehicles into the guardrail. They exchanged gunfire and Heidi Stevenson, who was a 23-year member of the force and a mother of two, was killed. Now, a man named Joey Weber came on the scene. He was a 36-year-old father of three and a good Samaritan. So when he saw these two crashed cruisers, Mm -hmm. he immediately stopped to help. And like many of the other victims, he was still unaware that there was any danger nearby because nothing had been communicated about where the gunman was or that he was potentially in an RCMP uniform or vehicle. As Joey approached the vehicles, Wartman shot and killed him. Wartman then stole Heidi Stevenson's police-issue pistol and lit both cruisers on fire before taking off in Joey Weber's gray hatchback. After fleeing in Weber's gray hatchback, Wartman went to the home of Gina Goulet. Gina had twice survived cancer, and all of her friends just loved that she just had a joie de vivre. And she was supposedly a good salsa dancer. Oh, really? Yeah, I read that somewhere, yeah. She also had two dogs who her family said were her prized possessions, One was a German shepherd named Ginger, and the other was a 10-year-old chihuahua named Ellie. When Wartman got to the house, Gina Goulet was shot and killed, and both of her dogs were shot as well. Wartman then stole her car, but found the gas tank was almost empty, so he headed to a gas station. But as fate would have it, two members of the emergency response team, Craig Hubley and Ben McLeod, were en route to try and stop the gunman and had to pull into the same station to get gas. This was about 62 miles south of Portapic. Hubley noticed a man in a gray hatchback and recognized the driver as Wartman. Yeah, Kath, I read that this guy had studied and studied and studied Wartman's picture. He wanted it burned into his memory, the image of the man that he was looking for. 
when he saw the driver of the gray hatchback, he was like, that's the guy. And what's great is that he wasn't even looking for a gray hatchback at this point. They didn't know. Correct. So he pulls out his gun just as Wartman's going for a gun and Hubley lit him up. Now, interestingly, I've read many articles about this and people speculate that perhaps Wartman pulled out the gun and shot himself in the head. But I have seen nothing official. Have you? No. And I think one of the challenges that we have with this is that a lot of times in the cases we do, we like to use court records because they're official documentation that normally differ quite a bit from the newspaper accounts. And in this case, we don't have that. Right. So there's a lot of newspaper accounts, but there aren't official documents that we can go, okay, this is the truth. Right. So Hubley is credited with killing Wartman. Police later found five guns in Wartman's vehicle, including Heidi Stevenson's Smith & Wesson service revolver. At 11.26 a.m. on Sunday, more than 13 hours after the first murder, the rampage had ended. After Wartman's death, eight additional victims were discovered. Jolene Oliver, Aaron Tuck, and their 17-year-old daughter Emily lived adjacent to Wartman's property and were found dead in their home at 5 p.m. on Sunday, 19 hours after police believed they were killed in their home. Couples Joy and Peter Bond and John Zoll and Joanne Thomas were found dead in their homes off of Orchard Beach Road after authorities searched through the burned remains. Corey Ellison was also shot on Orchard Beach Road after going to see if anyone was in trouble when he spotted flames at Wartman's garage. 22 people and an unborn child were killed, 13 people in Portapic, 4 in Wentworth, 2 in DeBert, and 3 in Shubenacadie. It is Canada's largest mass shooting in modern history. Gabriel Wartman was a 51-year-old denturist, so somebody who made dentures, who lived with his common-law wife in a log cottage on Portapec Beach Road, which was the next road over from the Blairs where his rampage began. Wartman also owned a second property on Orchard Beach Road, where he had a large garage where he worked on his collection of motorcycles and cars. It was the property on Orchard Beach Road that contained the fully marked replica police vehicle that he had put together. So, Kath, I read that some of the people in the community considered Wartman eccentric. But honestly, I feel like that word's a euphemism because so many things I read about him seem to indicate he was just a general ass. I agree. I read articles where his uncle was quoted and basically appeared not to be surprised that this had occurred or that he was the one to do something like this. Wow. Yeah. His common-law wife, Lisa, gave a two-hour interview at the police station the morning after, right? She says she comes out of the woods and calls the police and they interview her. And then she basically details their history of domestic violence. And it seemed to me that it was fueled oftentimes by alcohol. Which is common. Right. And although he did not have an extensive criminal history... There were things that he did that were illegal, but he flew under the radar. So, for example, it was alleged that he brought guns up from the United States illegally. It was alleged that he paid his tuition in college by selling cigarettes and alcohol, I believe it was, that he brought from the United States. Probably because the taxation on him was lower and so he could make a profit. That's my guess. 
So I guess he just didn't have a great character, but he wasn't necessarily on police radar. And apparently at one point he wanted to be a police officer. Which is probably what had him obsessed with building this car. Right. And that's another thing, as Uncle said, that he did have sort of an obsession with police officers. And Lisa Banfield said he did not like police officers. So it seems like an incredibly complex situation. Kath, as you can imagine, the entire community, led primarily by the families of the victims, began demanding answers about the RCMP's actions during this 13-hour rampage. And many people were highly, highly critical and basically telling the Mounties these deaths were on their hands and they should have done their jobs better. For almost 12 hours after Wartman left Portapique, the people of Nova Scotia received little to no information from the Mounties about the possible danger they might encounter on the province's rural roads. Obviously, we weren't involved in this, so I'm not going to play armchair quarterback the Mm -hmm. day after. But as I've mentioned on the show, I have a background in communication and it's been political communication. I've also been part of joint operations centers where we prepare for some sort of disaster. In any command structure like this, I've always been an integral part of it as the communication person. And from everything I saw in this, they didn't have one. Right. Which would explain the dearth of tweets and that there was any other outreach. But I also don't know their structure to know, is that something that's embedded in them? Is it part of their command structure? And is it something that they've even had to deal with before? Right. It was also unclear to the community what happened on the ground when police arrived in Portapique. Superintendent Darren Campbell said in a media news conference on June 4th that the officers dispatched were sufficient and that they followed their training. He said that their objective was to locate and stop the threat, and this is exactly what the Mounties and first responders were working towards. Following up our conversation about the lack of communication, the RCMP did admit that they only communicated with the public via Twitter, which, of course, we talked about the problems with that. Right. And they said that they counted on the local media to relay the information from their tweets to the public. But never contacted local media asking them to do so. That is correct. Okay. And so honestly, my impression of all of this is that this terrible, unexpected tragedy is unfolding and there are a lot of moving parts. Right. You know, when the dust settles, it's devastation. And now it is my impression that the Mounties are trying to shine the best possible light on the situation. You know, saying... We relied on local media to pick up our Twitter. That's ridiculous. Right. But at the same time, again, like you, Kathy, I don't want a Monday morning quarterback police officers. Like they went there in the middle of the night to do the best job they can. So I think moving forward, people are asking why and what could we do different and what should have been better and all that kind of stuff. You know, Kathy, something else that came out was, remember, we talked at the beginning of the episode that Staff Sergeant Halliday kind of discounted the fact that people were saying it was an RCMP car right? because the one person who we knew in the area who had it was at home and wasn't taking part in it. Was accounted for. Right. But what the authorities did find out is that Wartman had three registered Ford Taurus vehicles that were all decommissioned police cars, Mm -hmm. all of which were accounted for. So the authorities thought that he had likely gone into the woods and taken his own life or taken his own life in the garage that he set fire to. Right. Because in their experience, that was not unusual for somebody 
who had gone on a violent rampage to then kill themselves at the end of it. And they assumed that at some point they would find evidence of his death in the rubble that was left behind. Mm -hmm. But as we know, that wasn't true. I also read that Incident Command did not think about the fact that Wartman might have an unregistered decommissioned police vehicle. So it did not occur to them to even consider the fact until Lisa Banfield, Wartman's common-law wife, said something to them the morning that she came out from the woods. Right. So they set up this perimeter, and they basically think they're waiting until daylight where they could go in and find the body. Whether it be in the woods or in the garage that had been burning. Correct. And then I think one other thing that was really frustrating to the families and all of the members of the community who lived this, it's a small enough community that I'm sure everyone knew someone or knew someone who knew somebody. Oh, yeah. And one of the things the families were upset about that we'd mentioned before is that authorities never communicated that there was a chance Wartman might be outside of Portapique. But after the rampage was over, it was discovered that internally authorities did believe he had left. They just never communicated that to the public. Like many of the victims' families, Nick Beaton, who lost his nurse wife, Kristen, was extremely critical and believed that if they had released the information at the time they knew it, that his wife would still be by his side today. If the Mounties had armed with this information of who he was and what they knew by 11 o'clock Saturday night, she wouldn't have even been on the road. I've gone over and over and over again the fact that they did not release that he was dressed as an officer. Nick Beaton and all of the family members of the victims grew frustrated over the summer as calls for a public inquiry went unanswered. According to an article posted on the CBC website by journalist Brooklyn Curie, families who lost loved ones asked the federal and provincial governments to launch a public inquiry after three months of waiting for answers. On Wednesday, July 22, 2020, nearly 300 people marched peacefully to the RCMP detachment in Bible Hill, Nova Scotia, the command center during the April rampage. The families of the victims asked for a full public inquiry. Nick Beaton said that they had been contacted by Nova Scotia's justice minister only once in the past three months, but had an online meeting scheduled with him later that day that he hoped would answer some of their questions. The next day, family members were greatly upset after federal and provincial governments announced that instead of a public inquiry, they would form a three-person panel to conduct an independent review. Unlike a public inquiry, with a review, all documents and information collected as part of the review would be kept confidential. The review process also does not include some of the powers granted in a public inquiry, such as the ability to examine people under oath and issue subpoenas. It would be up to the panel to decide whether any hearings were held in public. The panel was set to be chaired by a former judge, a former prime minister, and a former police chief serving as the three members. In a separate article published six days later, Journalist Brooklyn Curie wrote that public outcry about the government's decision to conduct an independent review was swift and harsh. And within a week, federal public safety minister Bill Blair backtracked and said a public inquiry would go ahead. In October 2020, just days after the six-month anniversary of their loved one's deaths, family members finally got a timeline. It was set to begin 
at the end of the month. Bill Blair said in a statement, quote, Canadians deserve answers as to how such a tragedy could occur. The situation requires that our governments work diligently with all of those affected by this tragedy to bring forward the critical answers and to ensure an event such as this will never happen again, end quote. You know, Kath, after working in politics and being a communication director in politics, you get used to good spin. Oh, yeah. And I have to say, I was disappointed with the statement because it made it look like it was their idea to do a public inquiry. And it was because they knew it was for the good of the public, when in fact, that wasn't true at all. No, it was completely a result of the victims' families and community members banging down their door. And not only banging down their door, but they also then started going to other ministers of parliament, legal experts, Mm -hmm. and getting tremendous public support. Right. These self-aggrandizing, magnanimous statements get a little annoying. Well, especially with something like this. Oh, yeah. Are you kidding me? Yeah. So in response to this change in direction, Heather O'Brien's daughter, Darcy, said, and I like this quote because it reminds us of two of our former cases. Darcy said, quote, I have often said this. If it was myself or one of my sisters, my brother or my dad, my mother would have done everything I have done and more, end quote. Darcy knows her mother would have settled for nothing less than the truth. She would have demanded it and said authorities would have been scared if her mother walked in the doors of that RCMP station because her mother would not have taken no for an answer on anything. This is Mama Bear, mm-hmm. and it's Ms. Marion in the Lorenzen Wright episode, yep. and it's Mrs. Williams in the Tallahassee episode. Exactly. Tyler Blair, who was the son of the two first victims, Greg and Jamie Blair, said at the time, I know as much as I knew in April or May, and it's disgraceful. We shouldn't have to fight and beg for answers. With his parents gone, Blair now cares for his younger brothers and is running the family business. Although he and his father had talked about Tyler taking it on eventually, it wasn't meant to happen that soon and in that way. Tyler said, I'm just doing what I should do, what my father would want me to do. In the two years following the Nova Scotia mass killings, a lot of information has made its way into the news during the inquiry. In an article by journalist Haley Ryan with the CBC News, a new document released on May 17, 2022, just a few days prior to this recording, details the RCMP command structure and decisions over the 13 hours the gunman was active. It showed there was a disconnect with communication at all levels, including dispatch. Critical information was not passed along to incident command staff, like, for example, the report of who the gunman was from the very first call made by Jamie Blair and that he was driving an RCMP cruiser. The existence of the back road out of Portapic was also not shared, even though several of their residents told this to officers at different times throughout the following eight hours. And, Kath, one of the things that happened is that you had the people on the ground who were talking to the local residents But then you had the command staff deciding that the road that they were seeing, that they were being told about, was not suitable for a car to drive on, essentially ignoring what the people who lived there were saying. Exactly. Another critical issue was brought up by one of the incident commanders that night. Staff Sergeant Steve Halliday testified at the inquiry about the readiness of the officers to respond to an incident like the one they faced. Halliday spoke about what the first three officers on the scene dealt with on the ground. He said they were some of the bravest people he'd ever met who risked their lives to help a community 
in a situation for which their training would not have prepared them. Their training was based on what happened in 1999 at Columbine High School, which was focused on finding and stopping an active shooter in a well-lit, clearly defined area. Port-a-Pick was more like a bush tracking event and police on the ground did not even have night vision goggles. Corporal Tim Mills, who headed the 13-member emergency response team, testified that when his team arrived in Port-a-Pick from Halifax, two hours after the rampage started, there was chaos, dead bodies, burning houses, and explosions. Soon after the team's arrival, they were diverted by incident command to check out several suspicious sightings involving somebody with a flashlight outside homes in a community across the river nearly two miles away. So basically, Kath, the emergency response team gets to the command post and they're immediately sent out. Now, of course, unbeknownst to them, Wortman's gone. Right. So they're sent off in the darkness in the middle of the night to go check out these unusual activities or flashlight sightings, whatever they were. So Corporal Mills was saying that the emergency response team did not have operational tracking and digital mapping devices in their vehicles. That's really surprising to me. Yeah. He said they had technology on their phones, which would have allowed team members to communicate with one another, but it was not working that night. Wow. And here's the thing. I'm not sure why. My assumption always is that it's an internet issue. Right. But I do not know. And I don't know if, did you read anything? I didn't anything? read it. It wasn't explained in the inquiry proceedings that were made right. public. Right. So the emergency response team is sent out looking for these suspicious activities, and they're relying on verbal radio directions from commanders to navigate their way in the pitch dark. Through woods, right? Yes, exactly. And so Mills said that he and his team members had difficulty finding the location of the reported sightings using the instructions that were given over the radio. So basically, it was like too many cooks in the kitchen. So these guys are from Halifax. They're operating in an unfamiliar area. They don't have the benefit of high-tech equipment, and there's too many people telling them over the radio where to go. Because I think they were all on the same channel. I don't know that. I just know there were too many cooks in the kitchen. And lastly, the team was searching in a wooded area at night without a helicopter that had heat detection capabilities. So they could have seen any bodies in the woods. Correct. One of the key points in the documents that were released... Probably the key point. Probably. Mm -hmm. Was the major amount of distress for the families of the victims was that the emergency alert system that was in place for the region was never utilized. Family members have said that they are tortured with the idea that if an alert had gone out, their loved ones would have stayed at home. The inquiry documents show that Staff Sergeant Halliday spoke with a staff member at the Provincial Emergency Management Office on Sunday morning, eight hours after the incident began, about setting up a comfort center for port-a-pick evacuees. The Emergency Management Office was the only agency at the time with an alert-ready system in the province, which means that at the time of the shooting, alerts could have been sent to all Nova Scotia cell phones on 4G networks, as well as TV and radio stations. The Emergency Management Office was never asked to send an alert out through their systems. There was also testimony by Emergency Management Office staff that they made presentations on the alert system to RCMP multiple times in the years before this tragedy and offered them the ability to send alerts on their own, but that was turned down. Can you imagine they have such an excellent system in place and it wasn't 
used. Well, and this fact is what makes me think that communication was never a significant part of the RCMP command structure at all. Interesting. And again, I'm just speculating, but if they had a communication officer in place, they would not have turned that down. Right. Think of all the police departments and CHP and what have you, they all have their own Instagram, Facebook, Twitter feeds, and they all have at least someone who's in charge of those. But I mean, also like somebody who's the point person on, we're going to do this. These are the protocols for communication. Right, exactly. Since this tragedy, the RCMP and Halifax Regional Police can now issue their own alerts. So one positive change. Correct. During this podcast, we have made mention of the fact that five dogs were shot by Gabriel Wartman. Two of the dogs were shot and killed at Sean McCloyd and Alana Jenkins' house. The other three dogs, one that belonged to the Blair family and the two that belonged to the last victim, Gina Goulet, were all taken to the Metro Animal Emergency Clinic in Dartmouth and survived. It's little comfort because of the massive loss of human life, but it's something. The commission's final report is due November 1st, 2022. Our prayers are with the victims, the community, and the first responders. We do not believe that the victims' families are going to receive any comfort in the commission's findings, but we hope that the recommended changes are fully implemented in a timely fashion so that no other families have to suffer such devastating pain in the future. We want to thank you so much for listening. We really have a fun time recording this podcast. And the minute we don't, we're going to stop. <laughs> but we also appreciate all the messages we're getting we from totally listeners do. who tell us how much they like it and how much it reminds them of how they are with their friends. Exactly. And- so please just share this with your friends. And that helps us out a lot. Absolutely. And if you're not following us on Facebook or Instagram, we are at Killer Destinations Podcast on both of them. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com.